The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Two invitations as we uh, get ready to come before God's Word. Love to invite you to morning prayer, Sunday mornings, 9.15. We're having an amazing time seeking the Lord together. Before the service, you're all welcome to that. And if you want to uh, come tonight to 242, we're studying through Daniel. You're more than welcome to that. We'd love to have you. But let's pray. Lord God, to be honest with you, I get tired of my own speeches sometimes. It's probably not the way you're supposed to start a sermon. Um, We just want you to come and be with us and speak to us. We want to hear from you. So we pray that you would do more than I can ask or imagine, more than we can ask or imagine with this time, that your spirit would come and just show us again who you are and uh, impress it upon us. Reveal yourself to us again. Lord, some of us are probably distant from you, kind of holding you at arm's length. Draw us in. Some of, you are trying, some of us are trying to hide our minds and our hearts. Lord, just remind us you know. Um, many of us perhaps don't feel worthy. We're not. But Jesus, you've made us worthy by by faith in you. Lord, just come, speak to us, and show us how to pray. Show us how to relate to you, to enjoy you, and to endure um, the many sufferings you sometimes put us through. But we're here for your sake, Lord, to meet with you. We pray that that you would come near as we do so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing in a, a series I'm calling Revitalize. I just, I'm hoping, I want my relationship with God to have more energy, more, more passion to it. I want it to own more of me. I want to know him more. And I, I know you want that as well. And I, and I want that for you. And so we're, we're, we're trying to emphasize things like this in our relationship with God. And that's why we're talking about prayer. How can you have a relationship with God without prayer? You can't. It, it is it is our uh, connection, our, our communication with God. But there's a danger, you know, if you do a, a, a series on prayer, because let's be honest, how many of you, for, uh, for you sometimes prayer is frustrating, confusing, distracting, and dare we even say, boring. It's the way it feels sometimes. So what do we do? Well... Last week we looked at uh, what I called the heart of prayer from Psalm 16. If you missed it, you can have a a listen on our website. I do want to begin with just a few reminders for you from that. I think it's important. It's important to me as we keep going thinking about prayer. Three aspects I want to give you from prayer. Number one, prayer is responding to all of life in the presence of a personal God. Life comes at you, right? You respond. Sometimes we respond with anger, with rage, with joy, with a Facebook post. With, But I know one thing about you. If you have a friend, you go to your friend with the issues of your life at some point. You want to share it with him. You want to talk to him. You respond to life in the presence of your friend. Prayer. Look, you don't need fancy language. You need to respond to what life gives in the presence of God, with God, to God gaining his perspective. That's what prayer is. You're responding to life in his presence. Second thing about prayer, it's not just responding to life in the presence of a personal God. It's responding to God himself. I hope you're not the kind of person who just goes to your friend when you want something from them. But you actually like them for who they are. You want to know them. You want, to, you want to enjoy being with that person. So prayer isn't just a response to life in the presence of God. Prayer is a response to God himself according to who he is as revealed in his word. This is who you are. Now I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you for who you are, for what you've said. So it's a response to all of life in the presence of God, and it's a response to God himself according to how he's revealed himself. That's why I want to say prayer is a response to the friendship of God throughout all of life. Whatever life brings, you're going to God, and you love to go to God. That's your God. 
So the third thing to see then is we respond to all of life in the presence of a personal God. We respond to God based on who he's revealed himself to be. Third, we got to pray the word. That's, we got to pray the word. Look with me at just one line from last week's psalm, Psalm 16.2. We got a slide for this. What does David say? Number one, I say to the Lord, then what does he say? You are my Lord. What just happened? What happened? So, so small, but so humongous. I say to the Lord, look, he's got, a, he's got a truth idea about who God is. Who's God to David, the Israelite king? Well, he's the Lord. He saved, he saved Israel out of Egypt. He's the Lord. He, he has a, a, a knowledge of who God is. And we, know, we have that knowledge, too, in God's word. You know about God, right? You know something about him. But there's an, um, um, an amazing step between going from I say to the Lord, or, I know the Lord, I know about the Lord, to all of a sudden saying, what's that next word? You are my Lord. He just went from a truth concept, which is essential, which is important, and made it a personal connection. He had the truth he believed become a relationship with the person he knew. Do you see that? And that's how we pray the word. God, and we say, this is who God is. And then we say, now I'm talking to you, God, and here you are, right here, right here, just around the corner of your awareness. He's always there, and you're aware, and, and there he is, and you know who he is based on his word, and now you come to him in that way. Responding to who God is according to his word. God is the Lord, David knows it, and now David says, you are my Lord. That changes everything. Just changes everything. Many of you, 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 you know that difference. Um, some of us in our lives, our stories go from, I had concepts about God, and then all of a sudden, I met God. <laughs> and those concepts became real to me. It's really the heart of prayer. So we're taking, we're taking all these ideas to the next level as we go to Romans chapter 8. Big question is, you know, how do you respond to God for who he is? Who is God? How do you talk to him? Secondly, the big issue at this section is Roman, in Romans 8 is, how do you respond to God in the midst of suffering? Because if there's a challenge to our prayer lives, isn't it the reality of suffering? Suffering comes in your life. You remember? Some of you are in it right now. You are in it right now. Some of you, you have friends who are in it right now. And, uh, and we can all say, even if you're having a good time right now, just wait longer. I'm not a prophet, but suffering will come. How will you respond to God in that moment? Because there's a huge... When suffering comes, you know what comes. Oh, this whole God thing is a joke. Or maybe he's real, but he doesn't love me. He's not with me. He's still angry at me for something I did. Or maybe he's not as good as all these songs we were singing said. And your prayer life maybe goes away. These are, the, these are the questions when it comes to prayer. How do you respond to what life brings? How do you respond to who God is? We're going to do our best from Romans 8. I always feel intimidated when I try to talk about Romans 8. You ever tried to take a picture of something beautiful you saw? You went on a vacation. You saw the Grand Canyon. You saw the Pacific Ocean. Do you know people come here for vacation? We get to live here. That's amazing. Um, you saw the Pacific Ocean. You, saw, you tried to take a picture. Now, some of you are amazing photographers. For me, when I look at the picture of what I saw, I'm like, that's not what it was like. Right? It's not, it's not big enough, alive enough. It's like taking a thimble of, of water from the Pacific and being like, look, the Pacific. No. That's the way I feel when I talk about Romans 8. It's too great. It's too awesome. And anything I say, it's going to be like, that wasn't good enough. But we're, going to take, we're going to take what we can out of this passage about who God is and how we approach him, especially in suffering. Now just think for a moment about approaching God. Wouldn't you agree that how you, how you approach, you, you approach different people in your life in different ways based on who you think them to be, okay? The person working in the DMV, how do you approach them? The person who just cut you off in traffic, how do you approach that person? Your ex, 
they're here, you know, how do you approach them? Um, your intimidating boss, your close friend, your child. You approach each of these people in different ways based on who they are. How do you approach God? What does it mean to come to him? Uh, Christian Smith is a sociologist, and he's done a lot of studies on American religious belief. And he says, basically, I don't care what religion you claim to be, Christian, um, Mormon, um, Muslim, agnostic. He says, Americans have the same basic religion. This is what he says. And you know what he calls it? Academic time right here. Okay, you ready? Scholarly time. He calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. He says, after interviewing thousands, especially of young adults, this is what Americans believe. It doesn't matter where, where they go to church or whether they go to church. This is, this is what they believe in general. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay, And that means, if, if Americans believe this, that means it's in, it's in us a little too. We've heard this, we've seen it, we've felt it. So moralistic, what does that mean? God wants you to be moralistic. Well, this means Americans believe that God has kind of a list of little rules for you, and they're usually niceties. It's political correctness usually, niceties. Be nice to people, okay? And that's pretty much what God wants. That's his definition of good. Be generally a nice person, and if you do that, you're fine. That's all he wanted. He's a moralistic God, okay? So the standard is just be a nice person. And most Americans say, check, okay? Are you generally a nice person? Check. Is that all God wants for you? Depends on who God is. Second, therapeutic. Therapeutic, and by this, Christian Smith means Americans believe that God's greatest desire for us is a, is a sense of a comfortable, happy life. He wants you generally to have a comfortable, happy life. Everything should go okay for you. That's what he's there for, to kind of make you have a comfortable, happy life. And so that's, watch Oprah, right? Find yourself and, and, and be all you can be. And actualize your true goodness and be happy. Have a comfortable, happy life. Is that what God wants for you? Is that his greatest goal? I mean, we read in, from the psalm today, he satisfies our desire with good things. If you had anything that made you happy, it was from God for sure. If it was a good happiness. But is that it? Is that all he's there for? For you to feel comfortable and happy? That's what most Americans believe. Moralistic, follow the, follow the rules of being nice, therapeutic, feel happy, comfortable in your life. Third, deism. Deism means God isn't that deeply involved or that close in your life. He doesn't always come through. Americans feel like God is a million miles away. We, but that's the God we believe in. He wants us to be nice. He wants us to be comfortable and happy. But he's out there some, sometimes and he, he doesn't, we, we don't really know him. He's not deeply involved and, and a lot of times he doesn't come through. If that's what you believe about... Does any of that sound familiar? Does any of that feel familiar? Just be a good person? Okay, I can do it. Um, he just wants me to be happy. God, what's up? You're, I give you a C, you know? Um, do you, he's kind of far away. He's not really around. He's busy, you know? If that's the God you believe in, and supposedly most Americans do, what does that mean for prayer? How are you going to come to him? How are you going to approach a God like that? Well, you might every once in a while be like, God, I was a jerk to the person who cut me off. But, the, but most of the time you're like, hey, I'm a nice person, God. What's up? Because I've, I've met your moral requirements. Why aren't you making me happier? How many of you right now, you're like, life is perfect. I've got everything. My relationships, my finances, my kids, it's just perfect. God always makes me totally happy with every aspect of my life. Anybody in here like that? I've never even met that person. So if God's, if God's purpose is to take you to that place, how do you grade him? And then think of this. Do you realize what just happened? We're now grading God. Who's God in that picture? 
if I'm grading him? And so we, our prayers become uh, entitled. God, you were supposed to make me happy, and you fell through. I don't get it. What's up? And our sense of fellowship with him becomes either insecure, oh, I didn't follow your rules, that's why you hate me, there's no hope for me. Or, grading God. God, I was good and you're not following, what's up? And prayer, all of a sudden, God is like Santa Claus, right? He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Why? So you can get the cool present. Does anybody love Santa Claus for himself? Have you ever heard a kid say, I don't care if Santa brings me any toys. I just want to be with Santa. We use Santa. If he was real, he'd be crying. We don't care about him. We want what he's going to bring. He's a middleman to what we really want. And isn't that the way we treat God? Because that's what he's there for, right? Bring us the present. If you believe in a God like that, your prayer life will, it will rot. You won't have one. You won't need one. You won't see, a, see a, a reason for one. But I have good news for you. Moralistic therapeutic deism may be what many Americans believe in, but it is not a description of the real God. That's not him. And that's not what prayer is like. We're going to see a very different God in Romans 8. Okay, come with me to Romans 8. Uh, we'll keep our eyes on this page 944. Just a, a few things. Just observe a couple things from verses 14 to 17. Who is God? Remember, we come to God based on who we believe him to be. So who is he? Verse 14. Well, let's just collect some information. For all who are led by the what? Spirit of God. Oh, so we, there's one. God the Spirit. Now look at verse 15. By whom or by the Spirit we cry. What do we cry? Abba. Father. Oh, we just, we've got the Spirit. Now who do we have? The Father. And then in verse 17 it says, We are heirs with Christ. Well, it's Christianity 101, but let's remember it again. You'll never get, you'll never get to the depths of this. This is too beautiful and too great. What do you know about God. He's triune. One God in three persons. He's holy. He's set apart. He's beautiful. One God in three persons. You know, we can, we can feel confused by this, right? You ever had a headache over this one? And uh, somebody brought up the, well, consider an egg. You have one egg and a, a shell and a yolk and an egg white. And you're like, God's like an egg? You're not helping me, you know? What what are we doing? Well, listen, this is what happened. Israel believed in one God, and Jesus came and said, Yep, one God. And then he said, And I and the Father are one. One God. And then Jesus would pray to his Father. We're one. Restore to me, like in John, restore to me the glory I had with you before the world was made. What? 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 He's praying to God. He's not praying to himself, right? Jesus wasn't like, Dear self, you know. I'm really talking to myself here. No, no, no. He is praying to someone who is not him, the Father, with whom he believes he is equal to in glory and has been with from all eternity. And then Jesus says, and we're sending you the person of the Spirit. The third person, the person of the Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit. That's why we have Father, Son. It's a... It's a community. It's a relation. Not an egg. It's a relationship. The Father has always had the Son, and the Spirit is the person of their love and their fellowship. One God, three persons, distinct in person. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And yet they are perfectly unified. One God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. One God. That's why Jesus says, go make disciples, baptize them in the name singular one name, one God, of the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not a contradiction. Wouldn't you expect God to be more than what you can understand and not less? Wouldn't you expect him to be personal but, but super personal? 
extra. You know, I can, I can draw a line. Some of you can draw like two dimension, three dimension. Wouldn't you expect God to be deeper, more? I like C.S. Lewis when he says, if you're looking for something super personal, something more than a person, then it's not a question of choosing between the Christian idea and other ideas. The Christian idea is the only one on the market. A super personal God. And really, it's the basis for everything, for all of life. And we say God is love. You believe that? God is love? Well, how did he pull that off when he was by himself for ages upon eons before he made everything? Lonely God. Can't really be love until he makes something. All of a sudden, he's dependent on his creation. That's, that's not what we believe. God really is, in himself, love. The Father has loved the Son. The Son has loved the Father. The Spirit is the vessel of that love from all eternity. You know, he, all by himself, he's love. He is love. Second, why do you need... We're made in his image. Why do you need community so bad? You know, if you really want to punish a prisoner, what do you do? Solitary. You know, maybe if you're in prison, you're like, the first week, you're like, whew, that's nice. Get away from people. But then it'll drive you crazy. You can't be alone. Why do we need community so badly? We're made in the image of God, and God is community. Or how about this? What does it mean for prayer? Prayer is the most natural event that's ever happened. God talking to God. They communicate. They speak. God is triune. How do you come to the triune God? Well, look at this line from Jeremiah 30, verse 21. How do you approach God? Look what God says. (laughs) God said nothing. There it is. Nope, before that. Okay, I'll read it to you. I try to add in something in a sermon every week to just remind you how imperfect I am. It's a... Thank you. It's good. Jeremiah 30, verse 21, God says, Who would dare of himself to approach me? Who would dare of himself to approach me? Moralistic therapeutic deism, we're kicking God around, you know. Where are you? What's up? Biblical God's like, you really think you can walk in here? I'm the creator of the universe. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I'm perfect. I hate evil. And you, you think you can walk in here? Who would dare of himself to approach me? That's why I keep using the word response in my prayer definition. You could never approach God on your own according to your own initiation. You can't pin him down. You can't find him. You can't drag him down. You'll never get there. And here's the beauty of what it means to pray to a triune God. He has approached us first. Who would dare of himself to approach me? No one. But then in that very text in Jeremiah, God's saying, but I'm raising up a king, and in him you can approach me. So I want you to see just for a moment what the triune God, what some of the triune God has done. And we're talking about prayer and approaching him. I want us to see him approaching us. So I hope this one's on there. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know. We good? Yes. Before that. All right. Can you approach God on your own? Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be what? Stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We remember the law is a description of what it means to live a righteous life. God is righteous in and of himself. And the law is his description. says, "This, this is what makes you right with me. So you can think of the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet. Jesus sums it up with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. Okay. If you've kept that personally, come knock on the door. 
and you can approach God of yourself. How many of you are, have done that? How many of you have sort of done it? Anybody have an almost done it? Is anybody going, I've never been close to this. I've, I've never been close to this. I can't, I can't approach God. How could I do that? Next, verse 21, but now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So you can be right with God apart from keeping the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So, so here's what Paul's saying. You could never approach God or be righteous on your own. Hopeless. But God has approached you. And here the triune God, the Father, has sent whom? The Son to come and make you righteous. And through his perfect life, he always obeyed the law. And through his substitutionary death in your place, For your sake, he paid for all your sin. And then in victory, he rose from the dead so that you could be righteous, and the beautiful word is there, by grace, freely as a gift. Can you imagine? Here, just have it. You can be right with God. What? I got to do something. No, give up on that because you can't. Really? Yeah, just, just take it as a gift. If you want it, you can have it. It's free. But I've done so much. Yeah, I know, I know. But look at the cross. He paid for it. Every single one. It's right for God to accept you because he's been just and pouring out punishment for your sins. He just poured it out on someone else. He'll make, it's free, come freely as a gift. Who's approaching whom? Who came first? The father sent the son at the cost of the life of his son to bring you near. Now back to Romans 8, page 944. Look at verse 14. The Son of God is kind of part one in this equation. The Spirit is now part two. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are what? Sons of God. Now my sisters, don't take this personally. Old school way of thinking, okay? Who inherits? The Son, okay? And who are we in now? Who are we grafted into? The Son, okay? So we're all sons in the sense that we are in the Son, capital S, and that each one of us is a full inheritor. Full inheritor. All who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. What does this mean about the Christian life? Who are we led by? The Holy Spirit is right in us. We're led by the Spirit. Verse 15, listen, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Think of that moralistic, therapeutic, deist God. And if you have a high view of his, of his law and his list and you're not keeping it and you're a slave, I can't, keep the, I can't keep it enough, you don't love me. And this relationship with God is like making deals. Slavery, oppressive. That's not a relationship with the triune God. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of what? The spirit of adoption. That's his name. The spirit of adoption. So what is adoption? It's taking someone who usually was hopeless, who had no family, no people, no future, no identity, And then freely, by grace, even though you don't owe them anything by blood, bringing them in and giving them full inclusion, full status. And that's what the Spirit is doing in us. You've been adopted through grace. You've been adopted by faith in Jesus Christ. And so what do we do now? By whom we cry. What do we cry? Abba, Father. Think about those words. Cry. There's a passion there, right? It's a certain, and it's a communication. It's a passionate communication. With whom? God. 
What is that, folks? It's prayer. Your heart crying out, communicating to God, based on who he is according to his word. He has said, I'm the holy God, I'll make you righteous in my son. And I'll send my spirit. And we read that and we have the concept. And then God himself, the spirit, moves in your heart to where you don't just go, yep, I've heard that, Mm -hmm. I'll be adopted. Now you go, like we said, not just knowing truth, but having that truth lead you into Father. Now you're talking to him. You're relating with him. And that's, you didn't invent this, do you see? You didn't start this. Who came? Who's the spirit of adoption that stirred in your heart so you'd look up and talk? God himself has said, talk to me. Look at me. And God himself has said, look at me like a father who loves you. Look at me like this. Based on the reality of what Jesus has done. Prayer is amazing. And if we think we're trying to beat down the doors and say, God, listen to us, it's it's not it at all. We could never get there on our own. God has ushered us in through the work of the Son by the power of the Spirit, waking us up to who he is. He enables us to approach him through Christ by the power of the Spirit and its full inclusion. You ever hear that horrible phrase, uh, redheaded stepchild? You should never use that phrase. It's terrible. I just used it in a sermon. That's okay, my overheads aren't working, so everything's up for grabs, you know? Redheaded stepchild, what does it mean? What does it mean? When people say that, what does it mean? Well, we'll let you in the house, and we might feed you occasionally, but we don't love you. You know, in the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son in Luke 8, the son's eating, eating with the pigs, and he comes to his senses. What am I doing? And he says, I'll go back, and maybe, maybe Dad will let me be a slave. Maybe he'll let me back in, but all I can hope for is slave. And some of you still feel like, okay, he'll let me into the living room of heaven, but he won't let me into his face, because I'm too messed up. And you've got to see that's not true. Because in Christ, you're perfect. It's in him you're perfect. And the Spirit brings you in, fully, completely. You have no idea how much God delights in you if you're in Christ. And if you're like, I'm not in Christ, well, get in Christ. How? Trust him. Repent of your sins and trust him. Say, save me. Call upon his name. He will. He will. And he'll usher you in. (laughs) How do you respond to a triune God? Well, first of all, you realize he's after you. And secondly, you realize you come through the Son by the power of the Spirit and you come as a child. And what does it mean for prayer? When you pray, you don't have to be, dear God, as if he's vague and far away. God is a fine word to use. But do you see what's happening? When you pray, you're brought before the Father And when we say in the name of Jesus, it's not just like a postage stamp, you know? It's his person and his work validates this moment. I couldn't come without him. But his life, his death, and his resurrection gives me the, I got the the all-access badge, okay? I don't have to wait in line for the ride. I'm in. In the name of Jesus. And then we come by the power of the Spirit. You're moving me to pray. God brought you. God brought you in by grace. How do we respond to the holy triune God? Well, I guess we just humble ourselves and we rely on what he's done for us in bringing us near. We come through Christ by the power of the Spirit and we come as children. That's how he wants you to respond. Not moralistically, right? You can't keep the law. Jesus did it for you. Not therapeutically. He's not just trying to give you, you know, your white picket fence and make everything easy. He's giving you himself. He's working in your life. And he's not deist. He's not far away. He's not distant. If you've ever come at all, he came to you first. And he wants you in as a full-on adopted child. Okay, what about suffering? Because that's part of what Paul deals with here, right? He actually said words like, 
Uh, we're children. We're, verse 17, we're heirs of God, heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. So the first thing you should, you should see is an expectation of suffering. What did Paul just say? Provided we suffer with him. If you're a real Christian... You'll suffer with him. Now, there's so much mystery here. I don't know why some of us suffer in some ways and others suffer in other ways. Some people's lives don't even look like suffering in comparison to other people's lives, right? That's in bigger hands than mine. And yet, each one of us, each one, will suffer. The American moralistic therapeutic deist God has set you up to think that uh, suffering wouldn't be normal. Does America do that for you? You don't have to get old. You don't have to... You're going to suffer. God never promised you that you wouldn't suffer. Never said that. He said you would suffer. He did. We even see a little bit of an explanation. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. The place we live in is cracked and broken. It doesn't work like it should. Isn't it all cancer? Isn't cancer awful? It's killing everybody we love. And your body makes it all by itself, right? I'm no scientist, but there it is. You're... Our whole system is, it's almost like the body killing itself. We're broken. Earthquakes, tsunamis, injustice, depression, loneliness, futility, working, working, trying, trying, failing, failing, futility. It's broken. Creation's been subjected to futility. What happened? Well, you see here in this passage that creation follows its kings and queens. We were kind of uh, under kings in Adam and Eve, God being the big suzerain emperor, and we were given creation to rule it, to steward it. And in Adam and Eve, we fell. And, and what fell with us? Creation. It fell with us. It's broken. It's in bondage to corruption, as it says in verse 21. We're suffering. And in this suffering, look at this language in verse 22. We groan. Groan. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. Creation somehow itself is like, oh, make it stop groaning together into the pains of childbirth until now, in verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves. What are we doing? We groan inwardly. Oh, how long. Make it stop. So what are you going to do? What are we going to do when we groan in that suffering? With the presence of the triune God, we groan with hope. We groan with hope. Even creation itself, look again at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in what? Hope. Creation was broken, corrupted in what? Hope. Hope. What's hope? Something good is coming. I don't have it yet. You don't hope for what you have, right? Paul will say that. But something good is coming. And that's a joy all of its own, right? You ever had a vacation where after the vacation you were like, anticipating the vacation was actually more fun than being on the vacation. (laughs) The power of hope. I know, right? Hope. Creation itself Hopes. Look, verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of who? The children of God. Who is that? 
Well, that's us. We fell, creation fell. In Christ, we will rise and creation will follow. Hope. Hope. Expectations regarding suffering. One, you will suffer. Two, suffer with hope. Why? Suffering will end. And it will end gloriously. So we groan, but look at this. Look at verse 26. Here you are, you're in the midst of your suffering. Maybe it's today, maybe it's tomorrow. You're groaning. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And what's the weakness we're talking about here? For we do not know how to pray as we ought. Take a deep breath. You ever feel like you don't know how to pray, especially in the midst of suffering? It's biblical. You're in good company. We don't know how to pray as we ought. Okay? We don't have the wisdom for it. I mean, we, we know a lot about how to pray. We know, well, there's more here that we haven't digested in Scripture about how to pray. There's more to know. But sometimes in suffering, we don't know how to pray. We don't know how, how this is supposed to work out. And sometimes I think we're just d- exhausted, deflated, discouraged. We don't have the energy to pray. But look what happens. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. <laughs> Listen, when you're groaning, you're overwhelmed, you can't even pray. And then you kind of feel insecure that you can't pray or lost. There's like a, there's a, a real soft cushion to fall on. I can't even pray, I'm broken. And God just told you, I'm praying for you. And man, you don't need this whole go to a saint mess. You're aiming too low. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity says, I got you. I'm, I'm groaning for you. And this, this, this means his, his prayer is passionate. Deeper longings for redemption than our own. And his prayer is wise. He, he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. The Spirit is, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He knows what to pray. I don't know what to pray. I'm broken. God says, I'm praying for you. Rest. Wait with hope. Hope. I'm praying for you. You realize here the triune God has been talking about you forever. This is blowing my mind. I, my, you know, people pray. My mom always prays for me, I know. My grandma prays for me. She did. She's with the Lord. Maybe she still does. I don't know how that works. It, it, it's always amazing when you know somebody's praying for you. That they think of you, they care about you. And they're praying for you. But to, to, for, God, for God himself to be like, I'm praying for you. I'm talking to God for you. Uh, do you see this like salvation, this is a terrible example, a salvation boomerang that's happening here or a salvation embrace? Okay, the fa- we don't come to the Father. The Father says, I'm choosing you. I want to save you. And then he sends the Son, right? And the Son lives, dies, rises for you, accomplishes your salvation. And they send the Spirit who awakens you and enables you to pray, full-on child of God. And here it comes back around. And now the Spirit himself is praying for you. Praying for you and you're groaning. And then if you go to 834, Paul writes this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. He's interceding for you. So the Father chooses you, says Son, save him. Sends the Son. The Son accomplishes your salvation. The Son says, Spirit, go to him. The Spirit awakens you and brings you and says, Come to me as, 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 my, as, as a child. Come to me as your Father. And then the Spirit prays for you, and Jesus is interceding for you. You are double mediated as you're brought to the Father. You are embraced with two arms as you are brought to the Father. Sends the Son, sends the Spirit, brings you in. It's unbelievable. So you pray with hope. That's why Paul can say, and listen, he's, he's not sitting in a, in a high rise making seven figures or something from being an apostle. He suffered more than most of us. 
And he writes in verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. Oh, you're going to see some stuff. You're going to see some stuff. That's what he's saying. Pray with hope. Pray with hope, knowing your salvation is sure. When you groan, God is praying with you. He's praying for you. So we pray with hope. Go to verse 28. Pray with hope, knowing even in suffering, your salvation is sure and your future is secure. Okay? Pray with hope, even in suffering, knowing your salvation is sure and your future is secure. Let me show you. Verse 28. And we what? We know. Okay? It's a grit your teeth. Hang on tight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He's not far away. Verse 29. For, the, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become formed to the image of his son. Okay, moralistic therapeutic deism is so wrong. And that it's not just here to make you comfy and happy. What is God after? He wants to conform you to the image of his son. He wants you to be like Jesus. And horribly, I wouldn't have written it up this way, but I think it is effective. What tends to work somewhat effectively to make us more like Jesus? Suffering. You ever get your pride broken by having more success? I think I'm everything in a bag of chips and I just got a raise. Greatest thing God ever did for me was crack some of my pride. It didn't come easy. He wants you to be like Jesus. How did Jesus walk, right? He was born and then he ascended to heaven in glory. <laughs> no, he was born and he set his face towards Jerusalem. Cross before the crown. And we, we who follow, follow in his footsteps. Cross to be made into his image before the crown. But listen, he's not wearing a cross anymore. Where's he sitting? The right hand of God. What's he seeing? I don't know. Where are we going? Right there. This is what theologians call the golden chain of salvation, and it is awesome. Look at verse 30. Those whom he predestined, predetermined, okay? I'm going to save you. He also what? Called. That's when the Spirit says, wake up. <gasps> I need you. Those who be resting, he also called. And those who be called, he also what? Justified. That's when the work of the cross is applied to you. So his death took your sin. His perfection was given to you. You are right in him. So those who be predestined, he calls. Those who predestined, he justified. He's never predestined someone that he did not call and justify. And those whom he justified, he what? He glorified. Now, if you're sitting in here and you trust Christ, the first three things have already happened to you. You were chosen. You were called. If you're coming Christian right now, you're being called. It's awesome. You were justified. But as beautiful as you are, to my knowledge, none of you have yet been glorified. Right? <laughs> Anybody have any, uh, you know, I'm not sure. No, okay. How can he speak of it as past tense? You ever ask somebody to do something for you, and before they did it, they said, done. What were they saying? They're saying, I'm so good for this, you can consider it done. That's what God's saying. It's done. You'll be glorified. Listen to these words from C.S. Lewis on this idea of being glorified. Because if you trust Christ, even just a grain of faith, if you trust Christ, this is where you're going. Lewis says, the promise of glory is the promise. Almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. The promise that, that some of us, that any who really choose Christ shall actually survive that examination 
shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. When you are glorified, you will shine with the glory of Jesus within you. And God will face to face delight in you for who you are. How do we approach God? We ride on the shoulders of His Son. Our hearts are changed by the Spirit. How do we approach Him when we suffer? We groan, groan, groan. We rest in knowing He's groaning with us. And we know that though suffering is an expectation, it has a purpose. We're in a story, and it will end. And the end of that story is glory. Come to God as your Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. And as you groan, even through suffering, groan with hope, knowing that even as you pray to God, God is and has always been praying for you. And I bet God answers his own prayers. Let's pray. God, it's too much to consider your greatness and your power, our weakness, our sin, and to believe that we are loved like this. But Holy Spirit, we just invite you here. Do your work. Help us cry, Abba, Father, and believe it. Help us believe it. We come to you humbly, each one right now, confessing our sin, confessing our inability, and looking to your promises. You sent your Son to make us right. You've sent your Spirit to awaken our hearts. We want it. Show us. And Lord, even as we groan, let us groan with hope, knowing that the end of the story is glory with you, our Father, forever. We thank you for this. Apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.